Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fellow travelers. I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and I write the Dear Therapist Advice column for The Atlantic. And I'm Guy Winch. I wrote Emotional First Aid, and I write the Dear Guy column for TED. And this is Dear Therapist's. This week, a man estranged from his daughter for 25 years wants a chance to reconnect. She said, I changed my mind. I don't want you to come to my wedding. And I just asked her, why are you doing this? And she said to me, you weren't there for my teenage years. The last several years that I was growing up, you just weren't in my life. I said, I wasn't in your life because you kicked me out. Listen in and maybe learn something about yourself in the process. Dear Therapists is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, mental health professional, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. By submitting a letter, you are agreeing to let iHeartMedia use it, in part or in full, and we may edit it for length and or clarity. Hi, Lori. Hey, Guy. So what do we have in our mailbox today? Well, this week we have a letter about a very common but very tricky situation. All right, let's hear it. Dear therapist, my husband Lenny has been estranged from his daughter Julia, who is now 38, for over 25 years. She has three children, and he, of course, has never met them. When Julia was 10, he and I got married. She was severely poisoned by her mom. At Julia's wedding, her mom passed out during the ceremony upon seeing Lenny there. She was taken to the hospital and never returned to the wedding. Her own parents told my husband, there she goes again. Every rabbi, mental health professional, etc. advised him to wait until Julia grew up and moved out of her mom's house and that then she'd come around. Lenny is a family attorney and did not engage in a custody battle because he knew what that could entail for Julia. Throughout the years, he has sent Julia cards and they were either returned unopened or never acknowledged. Do you think there's any hope at this point for Lenny to have a relationship with Julia or at least know his grandchildren? Thank you, Patricia. This is a letter about parental alienation. And those situations for a parent are incredibly painful to know you have kids out there who just do not want any contact with you. It's one of the most painful things parents can go through. And then on the other side, there's the child who's obviously going through or has gone through something incredibly painful that made them want to cut off contact. And these are very difficult cases to deal with when we get something like that in our clinics, because we rarely get both parties coming in. It's usually the parent coming in and saying, I do not have any contact and I don't know how to reestablish it. Yeah. And I think what's so hard about it is that usually the parent feels like maybe they made some mistakes, but it didn't merit alienation, that they're also being portrayed in a way that isn't accurate. And that leaves them feeling like they need to defend themselves. They feel like they want to just throw up their hands because they don't feel like they can clear up these misperceptions that have been so embedded in the fabric of the family at this point. And yet there's so much longing to reconnect with that child. And when there's grandchildren involved, it makes it even more painful. 
And one of the things she mentioned in the letter was that he didn't want to embark on a big custody fight because he didn't think it would be good for his daughter. But that then puts him at such a disadvantage in that sense. And I've worked with so many parents who like, I tried to do the right thing and it cost me the relationship because I didn't want to put my daughter in the middle. It ended up my ex did that. So there's incredible amounts of frustration towards the ex because of that outcome. Yeah. And I wonder why it's the wife who has reached out to us on her husband's behalf, because it might be that he just feels so stuck and she sees that and she sees the pain and really wants to kind of right this wrong. And I think I know how we can find out. Let's go talk to them. Let's do that. You're listening to Dear Therapists from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dear Therapist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Dear Therapist. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lori Gottlieb. And I'm Guy Winch. And this is Dear Therapists. Hi, Patricia. Thanks for your letter. Hi, thanks for taking it on. And I see we also have Lenny, your husband. Yes. yes. Hello. With us, which is great. So we're so glad that two of you could come on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's a very painful situation that you described, and we'd love to hear a little bit more of the history there, of what happened over the years, how that alienation happened between you, Lenny, and Julia. I got divorced from my first wife in 1992. Uh, subsequently, I met Patricia. Interestingly, we met over a lunch that my daughter invited her daughter to come to. And then we met afterwards and started talking and started going out. And a year later, we got married. And at the time, I had what I considered to be a very close, very bonded relationship with my daughter, Julia. And interestingly, Patricia was not the first person I had dated after I got divorced. I had gone out with a number of people, never any issues. Somehow, this became a major issue. My ex-wife, Cindy, was very upset that I was dating someone who also lived in our community. We live in a fairly small community, and she basically threatened me and warned me I better not get married or there would be consequences. So the consequences were that my daughter 
rather quickly stopped seeing me. First, we were having what I would consider to be a real uh, legitimate joint custody where she was spent half the time with me, half the time with her mother. That quickly became a meal once a week, which then became nothing once a week. I would go over to pick my daughter up. She would say to me or my daughter in front of both of us, oh, so-and-so, just your friend just caught up, wanted to invite you for dinner, but you have to go out with your father. Or mm. she'd say things like, I wish your father would get cancer and die, and that would be better for both of us. I mean, I'm literally telling you what, what happened. My daughter was 10 years old at the time. What was Julia's reaction when this was said in front of her? Do you remember, did she say anything? Did she look at you? Did she look at her mom? Do you remember how she reacted to this? I'm going back literally 27 years. I kept a diary at the time. And all I can tell you is her attitude became much more negative towards me, angry. She would take on the tone and the words of her mother. It became, if we were going out, I had to take her somewhere to buy her something, clothes or whatever. That's how it became. If I wouldn't do it, we weren't going out. What was her relationship like with the friend, which I guess is Patricia's daughter, right? So that was how you guys met, was through her friend was your daughter, Patricia. Yes. So what happened to that friendship once the two of you started dating, and how did your daughter react? So interestingly, my daughter has disabilities, and Julia... And my daughter were in the same Girl Scout troop. Mm -hmm. So Julia would invite sometimes my daughter over for a Saturday meal, kind of out of the goodness of her heart because she didn't have a lot of friends, my daughter. So it was less a friendship and more a good deed, shall we say. So it wasn't like their friendship then died out because it was never really a friendship to begin with. Was your daughter okay with you dating Lenny? My daughters were fine with it. Yeah, my daughters were fine with it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Interestingly, one of the main factors, I believe, is because my ex-husband gave them what I call permission to like this man who would never be their father, but who would be their stepfather. That's a really good thing he did, to his credit. Mm -hmm. Lenny, yes. can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Cindy, your ex-wife, at the time of the divorce? Was it very acrimonious? Yes. When Patricia got divorced, she had a, a perfect divorce, very friendly, using mediation. Everything worked fine, and there was really no animosity. When I got divorced, I had a War of the Roses type situation. Mm. We had a marriage that was not a good marriage. My parents got divorced when I was very young, and I did not want to get divorced. So I stayed in the marriage way too long. But Cindy would often say to me, we should get divorced. I don't know why we're together. Eventually, I reached that point where I agreed, and then I tried to go to counseling to see if that would help. It didn't. So um, I pushed forward with the divorce. We got divorced very quickly after you went to counseling and you said, let's go ahead and get divorced, was she still on board with getting divorced? In action, deed, yes, but in reality, I don't believe so. Is Julia your only child together? Julia is my only natural child. And I, I think you said, Patricia, in your letter that you had consulted professionals and they all suggested, Lenny, to you that just wait until she's out of the house and she has less influence um, from Cindy and then things should be better? Was there any shift? What did happen when Julia did leave her mom's house? We had seen many psychotherapists over the first years trying to see what could be done. Who's we? Patricia and I, we went to a clinic and I arranged for therapy for my daughter. I try to keep it out of the courts because as a family court attorney who deals with the worst stuff, I knew what could be and I try to avoid that. My daughter graduated from high school, went to Israel for a year to study there, and I went over, I reached out, and started having a relationship with my daughter at that point. We emailed back and forth for the year. I met her there. We went out. When she came back, we went out to lunch one time, and then 
She was back in her mother's home, and within a couple of days, that was the end of it. Was there any discussion when you were seeing her? Any processing about what had happened, about the relationship? Was it just we're seeing each other and being very tentative, or did you actually talk about what had gone on at that point for the last eight, nine years? I believe it was just being friendly and trying to reestablish communication. We really did not discuss. What went on? There were certain things I couldn't discuss with her. She just wouldn't let me go there. What kinds of things? Well, if I would try to bring up anything like this, she would just not respond or change the subject. And I wanted to try to reestablish a relationship, so I didn't want to push her away. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sense of if she were to answer that question at that point in her life, what she would have said about why she had broken off contact with you? I feel I do because、mm-hmm. a few years later she got engaged, got married, and apparently I had learned that through a lot of pressure being applied by her mother's family, she eventually invited me. At first, my name wasn't on the invitation, nothing of that nature,、uh, but then she invited me, and I was excited and thrilled, and made the arrangements. And then,、oh, about a week or two before the wedding. She disinvited me. She said, I, "I changed my mind. I don't want you to come to my wedding." We were able to arrange to meet at someone's home, and we talked. And I just asked her. I said, "I don't understand what you're doing. Why you're doing this?" And she said to me, "She said you weren't there for my teenage years, the last several years that I was growing up. You just weren't in my life." I said, "I wasn't in your life because." You kicked me out, and your mother forbid me to be to your bat mitzvah or anything that was important. She said, "I know, but you still weren't there anyway."、Mm-hmm. So, I feel that she was angry. Maybe she felt I didn't try hard enough. That's a question that that I'm wondering about. So, when you say that Cindy wouldn't let you come to Julia's bat mitzvah, couldn't you have shown up at the bat mitzvah? Maybe not the party, but the service. I was told by several people in the community not to come to any. Parties. There, there wasn't much. Of, I don't think there was any service at all. Did you communicate with her at all at the time to say, you know, congratulations, or I'm really sad that I'm not going to be there. I'm so proud of you. Was there any communication going on like that at all? Yes, I bought gifts for her, which I was never able to give her, and I did try. Even though I wasn't there, I would let her know how much I loved her by writing to her, by leaving messages on the phone because she wasn't picking up at the time, I believe. But I did let her know. So you're saying right before the wedding, there was I think before the wedding, so there was this meeting, and and she explained she doesn't want you there because you were、uh, absent from her teenage years, albeit because you weren't allowed. But then you did end up coming to the wedding. How did that come about? So, as you can imagine, that was one of the worst weeks of my life. I was just very despondent, very upset. I spoke to our rabbi, and he insisted that I go to the wedding. That I have to go to the wedding to the ceremony. And so he said he'll go with me, and and so we went. And I walked in, and I saw my. The other side of the family, that everyone came over to me and they just hugged me and kissed me and thanked me for coming. They then took me in to meet my future son-in-law, and then I took a seat in the audience so as not to make a scene or anything. And then Cindy and Julia and my former father-in-law walked down together down the aisle. They had the ceremony. And towards the end of the ceremony, Cindy just fainted and passed out into the arms of a rabbi. It was just、um, you, you can't put words into it. What was Julia's reaction to seeing you? Because she also didn't know that you'd be there. I I did not go into the、uh, room where the bride sits before the wedding because I did not want to create a scene. I just wanted to attend my daughter's wedding.、Um, My feeling was that, besides the fact that I'd have a right to see my own daughter get married, I felt that she shouldn't have to go through life later on dealing with why she did not allow her father to be there. What happened when Julia did see you, though? Because she must have seen you there. I can't even remember having eye contact with her. To be honest. What was Julia's reaction when Cindy fainted? It was really towards the end. They finished it up. They kind of moved Cindy off to the side, 
and then they and then after the ceremony they attended to her and her parents and and siblings stayed with me and just basically said there she goes again with the theatrics she allowed them to take her to a local hospital apparently missed the wedding and then the rabbi called me a little later and said she's getting her strength together she's starting to spin this that you're just you just ruined your daughter's wedding so you should mm-hmm. leave which i did Has there been contact at all with, between you and Julia since then? And what efforts did you make since then to try and stay in touch in some way? No, I, I would write letters. I would send gifts at first, but everything how went unanswered. You, how did you know what her address was? So she was an adult now. Or did you send her emails? How did you try to contact her? People in the community seemed to know where she was. And then now you, it's a... Uh, the later 2000 so you, you could start googling i learned what google meant and you could start googling addresses and i actually spoke to my former in-law several times because they would come to visit another adult child who was living in this community and i believe i may have found out from them so literally no contact directly on the phone uh, or otherwise with julia it's really since the wedding in many many years right now No, and 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 the so the answer is no, and the irony is her mother then moved to that community to be near her too. I'm curious to know what you said in those letters. Do you remember? I would tell her how much I loved her, how much I cared about her, how important it was to try to establish a relationship again, to try to see things from her perspective. As difficult as it is to put this on me, it actually came back unopened. So I know she never saw it. So this was through the mail. It wasn't through email. Yeah, I emailed my son-in-law a number of times to try to reach through him. So I must have emailed Julia too and I was getting no response. So uh, Patricia, I have a question for you. So this has gone on for so many years. Why now uh, did you write to us and, and ask for help? Well, we talk about this a lot throughout all the years. And... As we're getting older, and Lenny, he has three granddaughters who he's never met. The oldest is either 12 or 13. So he would often say, I hope when they get older, they'll at least Google me to know that I'm alive because they've probably been told that I'm dead or whatever. So maybe that's a chance I have. He actually tried with another therapist a few years ago, and that therapist recommended he write a letter He did. That went nowhere. All these letters come back, returned to sender, unopened, whatever. Nothing gets anywhere. So as time goes on, is there something else we could do at this point? Is there another rock we could turn? There's got to be something. It's never too late. That's my attitude. It's never too late as long as we're on this side of the earth. So one night it was like midnight. I said, what the heck? I just stream of consciousness wrote that. Just reaching out. He didn't even know I wrote it because it, I, I, it's so painful. I mean, I have three daughters and Lanny is very connected to them. So it just, it just hurts me to know that he's got three beautiful granddaughters. And I mean, this is like the worst case scenario of parent alienation syndrome carrying on into the next generation. I mean... Can there ever be something, some inroad, some crack in that window? I also tried through the rabbis, and I was able to locate her rabbi, and I tried reaching out that way. Uh, again, I just got nowhere. The rabbi wouldn't respond to you? He spoke to me for two minutes one day, said he'll speak to me again a few days later. I've been emailing him and calling him, leaving messages. I just stopped at some point. It was clear he wasn't going any further. So again, I, I started thinking, well, maybe if there can't, I say that in quotes, be a relationship with with Julia, can there be some connection with, with grandkids? I mean, it just seems just so overwhelmingly sad that there should be such a generational cutoff. Lenny, do you know anything about Julia's life other than the fact that she has these three kids, is there a part of you that from afar is really proud of her? You look at what she's done and you're just filled with 
I guess, just parental pride and love, even with all the pain that's going on in the background, or I should say in the foreground. <laughs> I know something about her life. I honestly don't know very much. I'm just wondering if your friend Google got you anywhere, or even the people in the community. You're in the community. It's a small community. I'm wondering how much you know about Julia and where her life has taken her and, and her husband and his life. So I, I do uh, Google things or Facebook things because I do try to stay in touch and see what I can find out. One of my friends who seems to be able to get some information, he, he's provided me with the pictures of my three granddaughters. Uh, and he would always say to me, he'd say, do you want me to send this to you? Because I know how painful it is. And I'd say, absolutely. I say, I want to see it. I do get a lot of pride. And as I said, I love my daughter. I think what she's done is a terrible thing uh, because it wasn't just me. She cut off my, my mother, uh, my grandmother when they were alive. It's just mm -hmm. the whole family. Can you tell me what you love about Julia? That's a hard question that I wasn't expecting. <sighs> Take your time. I don't know if I can even answer that. I don't, I know so little about her. And I mean, she's 38. And I just, I, I don't know anything about her really when you get down to it. Tell me what you loved about her when she was little. I loved her smile. I thought she had a good heart. We had a very bonded relationship. What did you do together? We played games, board games. Unfortunately, when we would go out as a family, it was basically me and Julia, and then there was Cindy, as opposed to me and Cindy, and then there was Julia. What do you mean that when you went out, it was you and Julia, and there was Cindy, instead of you and Cindy, and there was Julia? I feel like uh, a couple is the main core. Like, it would be me and Patricia, for example, if we went out. And then there's the children who are the uh, extended part of you. But here it was more like it was Julia and me as the couple and Cindy was the extended part. Lenny, I know that at the time of the divorce when Julia was still a minor, your feeling was, I can't get into this fight with Cindy because Julia will be collateral damage and I don't want that for her. She will be the one to suffer, so I'm going to stay on the sidelines for her benefit as much as possible. And I'm wondering whether you've considered over the years since she's become an adult, stepping out of the sidelines uh, or do something that exactly the kind of thing that you would never really do when there's a custody negotiation going on or when there's the option for her to get really caught in the middle there. Have you considered doing anything that is more proactive since she's been an adult. So we're, I guess, laughing or smiling because Patricia has that conversation with me very often. She's always uh, prompting me and, and pushing me. She's very much in my court in that regard. I think if I'm honest enough with myself and I look at all these years that have gone by, the bottom line is I haven't done enough. I feel that I haven't really done much other than the letters and the cards. In that regard, I don't feel like I've stepped up to the plate. Did you not step up to the plate because you don't want to make it difficult for Julia by having that potential confrontation? Or did you not step up to the plate because you were trying to save yourself the heartache of further rejection in person? I would tell you it's both, really. I have to say I've compartmentalized this whole thing. Uh, to live my life. It, it's so painful and so difficult. I mean, there are certain movies that we'll watch and Patricia will see me cry during those movies when, when they involve parents and children or, or reconnecting. It, it's so difficult. And I think a large part of it is I, I've blocked it. I've really blocked it. And it's like opening up a, a really sore wound. So yeah, that's certainly a big part of it. 
And that might be where there's some disconnection between the perception of what you think is going on and the perception of what Julia thinks is going on. Because that comment that she made to you about, well, you weren't really there during my teen years. And you said, yes, but you made sure I wasn't there. You didn't want me there during your teen years. I think there's this fantasy that all children have, even adult children, of my parents are going to fight for me. Even if you're telling them, go away, right? When you think of little kids, when they say to their parents, go away, I hate you. They don't really want you. In that moment, they feel that, but they don't really want that to happen. I think it's interesting that Patricia was the one who nudges you. Patricia is the one who wrote the letter to us today. Because this is just so painful for you that it's hard to open that door emotionally for yourself because you feel like you won't survive it. And that's true. And at the same time, I imagine that maybe from Julia's perspective, there is some element of he didn't fight for me hard enough. Even if the message was go away. I, mean, I get that. I get that. You're asking, is there something I can do? Are you clear that even if there is something you can do to do it? would be to open up that wound that you've been able to compartmentalize. To do it would be to really risk a lot of pain. And I'm asking if that's something you've thought through, if that's something you're actually indeed looking for. Is that something you're, are you, are you humoring Patricia or is that something that you're ready to do now, to go and fight now? Is that something you would be ready to do? So I would certainly tell you, am I afraid? Is that a big factor? Absolutely. Can you talk more about the fear? So I'm very scared about this. My stomach has been just uh, a wreck the entire week, just thinking about it and, and really opening this all up again. I don't know what else to do anymore. And I think I have to become more proactive. So I'm prepared to do whatever anyone can think of to try to see if I could break the stalemate. What do you fear more, that you'll try something and it won't work or that things will stay the way that they are? I'm, I'm not sure there's a difference because if I try something and it doesn't work, then things are going to stay the way they are. It's really the same thing to me. There is a difference because you will be smarting from the pain in a fresh way if you try something now and it doesn't work. Yeah, that's, and that's a good point. I don't know, like I, I've learned to live with this for so many years and I don't know what it can do to my life. It's very scary. What is the worst possible thing that you think it could do to your life? If you reach out, you get really proactive about this and she still doesn't want to have contact with you. The worst thing, I guess, would be my health, honestly. I had a heart attack years ago. I'd be afraid yeah. it would happen again. Patricia thinks that it was all caused by stress or am I holding it back or, or combination. That's a scary thing. And are you also aware, Lenny, that in the best case scenario, that is that you take some kind of action and it does work and she's willing in some way to have some kind of contact with you, that there would be a lot of processing and very difficult conversations to be had. In other words, that the difficult moment is not just the moment of you taking action, but it will be many moments that follow, because this is a relationship that would need a lot of work if I were to get onto the right track. Is that something you're also uh, considering, that this is not just a one-time shot, but probably an ongoing exposing of the wound and all of it? So I, I'm prepared to do that. In fact, in one of the letters I wrote her, maybe more than one, I've suggested we go to counseling. She picked the counselor. She picked the time, the place. I understand that's exactly what I'd have to do. I think one of the things that scares me is that at least initially, if we get anywhere, it would require me to have contact alone. That Patricia's cut out of that. Probably. That bothers me tremendously. I, I haven't even discussed it with her. 
Right, because Patricia just turned at you like, hmm, what do you mean? That was the expression. Yeah, I, I, it's we're two separate people, and, and that bothers me tremendously. But I know that would have to be the case. And Patricia does too, probably, right? At least at the beginning. The thing is, you are two separate people, and there are a bunch of relationships here. There's Julia's relationship with you. There's Julia's relationship with Patricia. There's your relationships, respectively, with the grandkids, potentially the son-in-law, and your relationship with each other and how this affects that as well. It sounds like Patricia has been a great support for you throughout all of this. 100%. She's a rock. Yeah, and so having to go into this without her, meaning she'll be there to support you, but she won't be by your side because Julia probably would not want that right now. Right. So I'm not afraid to do it alone in that regard. I just don't like cutting her out. What, What I'm hearing is there are so many reasons based in fear. And the fears that you're describing, I think, are just one when you sum it all up. And that's the fear of having your heart stomped on again. So you can say, well, I don't like that Patricia wouldn't be a part of this. I don't like this or that or the other aspect of it. But I think at the end of the day, you said, and I think it's very symbolic, you said, I'm afraid of having another heart attack, the seat of love. That your fear is that your heart in every way might not be able to endure this. Yeah. And at the same time, I don't know that your heart can endure leaving things the way they are, knowing that you didn't act as proactively as you might have. Patricia said something very similar to me last night. And and those really are the choices you have, the choices to do nothing, but then have that question of what if I had taken more proactive action and living with that or risking taking more proactive action and risking getting your heart stumped on. Because when you take proactive action in this kind of situation, there is always hope. And it's the hope that gets dashed that is so painful. And there's no way to take proactive action without allowing the hope to come through. And you've been able to compartmentalize for many years and keep hope down and keep expectations down. But it won't be possible to do that if you're actually planning to take action. So those are the risks. And you're saying very clearly, Lenny, which I'm kind of glad to hear that I would rather risk having my heart stunt on. So even if it doesn't work out, I'll be able to say to myself, I did what I could. I'm saying that. Patricia, you're nodding along as Lenny is speaking. You seem to be so supportive. You seem to be really clear about, yes, of course, I can't be there right away. So you've thought about this a lot because you've been living with it for so long. I'm just curious, have you ever thought about what is the most proactive thing you could see Lenny doing? Mm. <laughs> wow, that's a great question. What is the most proactive showing up at her apartment? Because we've talked about that. You have? Yeah, we've talked about like when the letters come back, like go to her apartment house and just see what the apartment number is. Because one came back saying wrong apartment number. So I said, go to the apartment house, like do your own investigation. Just show up. Um, I know that's huge, but um, I'm nodding from the perspective of, of Lenny's talking and the heaviness and the pain. And I'm also nodding because everything you're saying is just so amazingly right on. I mean, the visuals of the heart being stomped and the metaphor of the heart attack and the breaking, I mean, it's so powerful. And fear is a huge factor in Lenny's personality and doing what he's done up until now or not doing what he's done up until now because the hurt and the fear of rejection has outweighed the benefit. I bring it up openly and say, if you were to die tomorrow, And on your deathbed, would you be okay that you did enough, that this was it? And sometimes in the past, his answers have been yes, because the pain of re-engaging and opening that up is, is too horrific, too hard. But of late, 
it's been not such an obvious answer. So maybe there's starting to be a shift. Maybe there's starting to be a shift since I got the response from your letter. But these conversations, even in the last 10 days, have started shifting. Oh, there's a shift because Lenny is really clear right now. And so there's definitely been a shift. You didn't waffle on that. You were clear. Right. I'm clear. So that's a big shift. Yes. And sometimes these shifts happen as people get older and they start to really come to terms with the reality that they might not have as much time to fix something that maybe they imagined they would have earlier on. Or for something to get fixed spontaneously because she comes to some kind of epiphany. Right, that the urgency the urgency becomes heightened as people right. get older. I see also on your face, Patricia, throughout this conversation, I've seen how much you care about Lenny and love him. And as a parent yourself, how much you can empathize with the pain that he's experiencing. And, and I wonder if you're holding a lot of the pain for him that he's not able to feel himself. Yeah. I mean, it's going to sound wrong, but I'm caring for the two of us. Like, yes, I care more than he cares. Now, that's not the truth. Of course, he cares more, but it feels like I care more because this judges me to the point of doing things about it and trying whatever kooky thing I could possibly think. Like writing a letter to us. Yeah, right. That kooky thing. And, and he's comfortable closing the door, locking it, putting the key in a compartment and saying, let me just live my life with my step-grandchildren and I'm doing fine. Why are you rocking the boat? It's not that you care more. It's that it doesn't hurt as much for you to think about it. You know, there's another piece of this, which is that there's often so much shame for the estranged parent in a community where you have to explain to people all the time where you just meet people and they say, do you have kids? And yes, I have a daughter. Oh, you know, tell me about your daughter, right? Where you might be out socially. And then, oh, it's just such a, a point of pain right there. And then what do you say? And do you have a story that, so you don't have to get into it with strangers or people that you don't know that well. In daily life, this comes up where you're reminded and there's a lot of shame because I think a lot of times the estranged parent worries that people are going to think, well, what did this person do that their daughter doesn't talk to them anymore for all of these years that he can't see his grandchildren? What's the real story there? What happened? And so I can understand, Lenny, why part of you thinks it's easier to just kind of live the way you're living and have the grandparent relationship that you have with Patricia's children. If I could just say that, his way of coping all these years, it's kind of like sometimes I feel like I'm judgmental because how could how could you do that? And then I stop myself and I say, like you said, this is his pain. This coping style has worked for him all of these years. Because what the coping style is of compartmentalizing is it is not like repression. Repressions means you put it out of mind, you don't think about it. When you compartmentalize, you think about it, you don't feel it. What you compartmentalize is the emotional aspect. So the ideas can be there, the thoughts can be there, but you find a way to put the feelings aside so that the hurt is not there all the time. And, and it's not that that's comfortable, because you said, you know, he's comfortable. He's not comfortable, but it's easier. It's just a little less painful. And it's such a great distinction. Yes, the compartmentalizing the feelings, because it's too uncomfortable to feel. And and for 25 years, he's led an amazing life. I mean, in his professional life, in our life, in our doing amazing things together. So it's not like he's he curled up in bed and said, I'm done. His coping skills have tremendously enabled him to be resilient and carry on. And now we're here. This is one of the reasons I went into the field that I went into. Family law. I, I, I'm a trial litigator in dealing with child abuse, primarily uh, domestic violence and custody. That's what I do. It's one of the things. It's been so rewarding. I can't even begin to describe how rewarding that's been. And there must be such cognitive dissonance when you can do that for other families, but you weren't able to manage that with your own. And so we're glad to hear that you're open to some possibilities and maybe trying something different instead of what hasn't worked before. And so I think we, uh, Guy and I have some advice for you. 
great. <laughs> It's very clear that you've been thinking about Julia every single day of your life in some way. And you've tried to contact her. You've made various efforts. And even so, we're not sure that Julia knows this. And that might be very confusing for you because you feel like you've tried so hard and she was the one who pushed you away. But I have a feeling that she sees it differently. So in order to make sure that she knows, we want you to create a very strategic campaign. And the campaign isn't to get her to reconnect with you, although we hope that that might happen at some point. But the campaign is to make sure that she knows how much she matters to you. Because we think that will do a lot, no matter what she does. One of the things that Julia might have been thinking was that in your work every day, you are fighting for other people's kids, but that maybe you didn't fight enough for her. And again, this is her perspective. This isn't necessarily how you think about it. But it's going to be really important that she feels like you understand why she is so hurt. And what's important for you is to feel like you've done everything you can. Like you are now going to be as proactive as you can possibly be. And that really means a full court press. It really means a campaign. Because one letter, one voicemail or two is not going to give her the impression that you care as much as you do. And it's not going to give you the impression that you've tried as hard as you need to. And that campaign is contacting her by voicemail or by email or by letter, but one of those every single day in which you say to her, I screwed up because I think about you every day, but you don't know that. I know you don't because I didn't make that clear enough to you over these years. And so I'm going to be contacting you every day with the hopes that we can speak eventually. And if not, with the knowledge, at least that you know that I truly care. Because that's what, as your father, is really important that you know. That it's every day that I think about you. And we'd like you to start that campaign as soon as possible. And we'd like you to keep a little bit of a journal on what it feels like to be so proactive, what it feels like to fight and would like to hear how you're feeling after two weeks of this campaign. And would like to hear from you, Patricia, your perspective on how Lenny is doing in this campaign. What is fighting doing for him? Is he, is he putting a spring in his step? Is he more proactive in other areas of his life? We'd like both perspectives, yours, Lenny, and yours, Patricia, about him. Could this be perceived by her as harassment? So here's the thing. It seems like you guys have a lot of reasons not to be proactive. And it's, it's not that there isn't some real validity to some of the concerns. But the fact is that from Julia's perspective, it's been decades. And her father tried to send some letters Maybe she received them. Maybe she didn't. We don't know. If you have any pieces of information from Julia, it's this. In my teenage years, you didn't fight for me, and I don't want you at my wedding. That is the one piece of information you have. She feels you didn't fight for her. And I have a feeling it's very hard for one's child when the parent is not saying, I am out there fighting for you every single day to know how much they care, to know how much she matters to you. You're not showing up on her doorstep. You're not you know, trying to waylay her on the street. You are simply sending her an email, a voicemail, a letter in the mail. And so we'd like you to do this for two weeks straight without skipping a day. 
so that Julia sees what it's like to have her father fight for her. Now, we don't expect anything to happen in these two weeks. We would like you to report back in two weeks to see what it feels like to you to actually fight in a concerted way, to start this campaign, to try to get reelected as her father. You are running for the office of father and you need to get reelected. You've never done that kind of campaign with her. But here's the thing, Lenny, for this to truly have an impact, it has to be a campaign and we want you to do it for a full year. And I know that sounds like a lot, but it's been many years where Julia doesn't know that you've been thinking about her every day. And we want to give her enough time to see you be proactive, to see you fight in a consistent way. And we think a year is that amount of time. And then at the year mark, you can let her know, hey, I'm so sad that you weren't interested in having a conversation with me. I wanted to let you know how much you matter. I, and I feel like I've done that. And I will still think about you every day for the rest of my life. And I want you to know that I am here for you. And then maybe you'll have a sense of peace at the end of that year, where no matter what happens, whether she gets back in contact with you or she doesn't, that you did the thing that she said you hadn't, which was to fight for her. And you fought a good battle and you might win and you might not, but you showed up. I want to speak not to the, the part of you that is full of fear, but I want to speak to the part of you that's full of love and longing. How does it sound to that part of you? It sounds very good. I'm in. That's what I'll say. I, you know, Lenny, I, I, I want you to think of this when you're doing it as this is me fighting for her because that's a very empowering thought this is not me begging her this is me letting her know that i care and that is an empowering thought and that's the thought that should sustain you through this even if you don't get responses you made a good point uh before that really hit home when you said that how hard i fight for other children but i haven't done it for her and Maybe perhaps she's aware of that, and that is a reality to her. And she needs to know that she matters more than those other kids. And I don't think that's been communicated, and that's what we hope will get communicated to her, no matter what she does with it, through this campaign. I see that. Thank okay. you. All right. Well, we look forward to hearing how it goes, and we'll speak to you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Okay, great. Really very special. Thank you very much for talking with us. It's really been a pleasure, and we really wish you the best, and we wish you good luck. Well, thank you. Thank you. Very enlightening. I think Lenny has an opportunity here to really make up for a lot of years in which he was way too passive and way too on the sidelines. And I think in part, it's because when you are a lawyer in family court, you are so aware of how bad things can go. You really do want to stay away from it, but sometimes you stay too far away from it. And I think he did. I definitely think that his work informed some of his decisions, but I think it went much deeper than that. I think it was so painful for him. And sometimes when something is so painful, we don't want to feel. Every time he would kind of stick his neck out a little bit and he would get that rejection, it was just too much to bear. And from Julia's perspective, I imagine she thought, well, why isn't my dad fighting for me? That's the one piece of information we got from her. And unfortunately, probably her mom told her all kinds of reasons why her dad wasn't fighting for her. And then when she doesn't hear from him, it just validates what her mom has been saying. And when she said that to him, you didn't fight for me as a teenager. I think what she needed to hear was tell me more about that, because I have a different impression of that. I want to hear what your experience was. And I think that he's opening the door now to say, I really 
think about you. I care. I screwed up. I didn't communicate that to you. And I want to hear about you and your life and your experience. And I agree with you that I think it goes deeper than the professional stuff. And that's why I'm really curious to hear how two weeks of fighting will impact him. What I heard a lot of was, well, we tried everything, but I don't think they tried everything. So I want to see what it's like when they have a task, a specific concrete task of here's what it looks like to try everything. And are they still going to find that they're not able to do it? Hopefully between the two of them, they'll be able to make some progress. You're listening to Dear Therapist from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a quick break. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Guy, we heard from Patricia and Lenny, and we gave them something really hard to do. So let's hear what happened. Hi, it's Patricia and Lenny, and here is the update of the homework assignment you gave to us. So, Lenny, you go first. Wow. It was not easy. Uh, in fact, the first couple of days were still very stressful. However, I did reach out to Julia every day, and I reached out to her in several different ways. I was able to get a phone number, and I would leave some voicemails. I then left some text messages, and I sent letters. So the first couple of days were still very stressful, but I made sure to make a phone call and leave a voice message the second day uh, because I felt that that was the hardest thing to do and I needed to deal with that head on. And I would say that it did become easier after that, although even as recently as yesterday I called and it was still, I found it stressful beforehand. Yesterday was Joy's birthday, so um, I did leave her a message. I sang to her happy birthday. And... All in all, it gave me a good feeling to do this. I felt that it was important. I felt that it even transferred over to my daily life. I felt that I was a little more proactive in initiating different things. And I intend to continue to do this for the 
ensuing year, as you had suggested. I may modify how I do it, but I want it to be meaningful and regular and not to become rote and just annoying to her. So thank you very much. Okay, so my part was to observe how he was these two weeks, and I have to say that all in all, surprisingly so, he was pretty calm. He likes to use the word agitated when he gets anxious or upset, so I would say that his agitation level was pretty low, other than right before a couple of the phone calls. But other than that, he was basically in a good mood. I feel that he felt a bit more empowered, and it did carry over certain specifics into more proactivity, doing things without being reminded so much, taking care of certain things again on his own. And I think it was a positive experience. And I do hope that he will continue it into the year, as you said, to be reelected as her father. Thanks. This was a great opportunity and a great conversation we've had. Very enlightening and a very interesting homework assignment. Thanks again. So what I loved about what happened was that he went from a place of feeling helpless and like there was nothing he could do about this situation to becoming proactive. And even though he hasn't gotten a result yet, and we were not expecting that he would get a result at this point, it changed his way of feeling about himself and also who he is in the world that it seemed to have translated more generally for him, according to both him and Patricia. That's the interesting thing about both helplessness and on the other side, proactivity. They're a bit contagious, both of them are. So when you feel really helpless in one domain, it often spreads into other domains. But then when you want to kick out of that, if you can get really proactive in one specific area, it will spill over into other areas as well. And it's great to remember that, that you don't have to address the issue in the domain it's at. You can literally sometimes do it in a parallel place and it will still carry over. Yeah. And I think the piece that's important here is that he was doing something not just proactively, but differently, that he was taking responsibility instead of defending himself and trying to say, well, I don't understand. I was there for you. I tried to be there for you. You're the one who didn't want to see me. His new approach is, I realized that in some ways I failed you and you're very hurt and I want to hear more about that and I'm interested in your experience. And now he, I don't know how much he's able to communicate that and the kinds of messages he's leaving, but I hope that that is the gist of his messages so that she knows that he's approaching her from that perspective. And the cherry on the cake for me was when he said, I'm going to try and vary it up so it doesn't get rote. So I put thought into it. So it's meaningful each time. To me, that's the best thing he said, because it means that his heart is really in it. And hopefully that will come across to Julia. Hey, fellow travelers. If you've used any of our advice from the podcast in your own life, send us a quick voice memo to Lori and Guy at iheartmedia.com and tell us about it. We may include it in a future show. That brings us to the end of our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review it. You can follow us both online. I'm at lauriegottlieb.com and you can follow me on Twitter at lauriegottlieb1 or on Instagram at lauriegottlieb underscore author. And I'm at guywinch.com. I'm on Twitter and on Instagram at Guy Winch. If you have a dilemma you'd like to discuss with us, big or small, email us at laurieandguy at iheartmedia.com. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. We're produced and edited by Mike Johns. Special thanks to Samuel Benefield and to our podcast fairy godmother, Katie Couric. So this episode marks the middle of our first season and we're going to be taking a brief break. But don't go away because when we come back, a woman struggles with resentment toward her sister, who always seems like the perfect sibling to their parents. 
sometimes I think, oh, I should be better at this. I should ask them more questions because that's what Jill does when she's there. She writes questions for the night and has people discuss memories and labels the antiques. And Oh my goodness, she is Mary Poppins. Yeah, and it's like, I can't compete with that. I don't know how to do that. Dear Therapist is a production of iHeartRadio. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.